I used to love watching the TV show Seinfeld. Uh, there was Jerry with the sharp observations and the quick one-liners. There was George, lazy, insecure, always stumbling from one crisis to the next. Then there was Elaine, the superficial and energetic ex-girlfriend. And of course there was Kramer, the friendly, brutally honest, crazy neighbour. But by season nine, I'd had enough. Because they were all thoroughly unlikable, I reckon. They were selfish, they were self-obsessed, they lied to get what they wanted, they weren't interested in anyone but themselves. It was no wonder they could never keep a relationship for long. And even though I hate to draw the comparison, uh, these chapters of Genesis tell us a similar story. Look as hard as you like, but it's a story where no one comes out looking good. This is a story with no heroes. Let me quickly introduce the cast. We're starting out verse 19 of chapter 25. Our cast begins with Abraham's son Isaac. This is the account of him. Although in the next few verses we find out it's more about Isaac's sons. We're going to see Isaac as a man who plays favourites with his kids, whose appetite for food rules his common sense. Verse 20, he's 40 years old when he marries Rebecca. Rebecca, well, she's determined and ambitious. She also plays favourites with the kids. She plots and plans underhanded deals to benefit her favourite. They're the parents. Verse 21, Isaac is praying to the Lord for his wife because she's childless. God answers his prayer in duplicate. There's twins. Uh, She's feeling an awful lot of kicking going on in there. When she asks God what's going on, he says the wrestling match is just a sign of things to come because it's not just two ordinary babies, it's two nations who will come from her womb. Verse 23, one nation stronger than the other and... Very curiously, against the usual way of things, the older will serve the younger, which becomes very important in the plot. They're born, verse 25, Esau, red, hairy, Jacob, not long after, grasping his heel as if he's trying to hold him back and get out first, a habit he keeps up his whole life. The names are not very flattering. Esau means hairy, Jacob means grasper. Uh, That's the cast. Now for the plot. It's a tale of two meals. Uh, First up, meal number one, Esau's meal and his birthright. Time has passed, the babies have grown into men and the twins couldn't be any more different. Esau's an outdoors sort of guy. He's a man's man. He loves dirt under his fingernails and he loves hunting Uh, Jacob prefers the indoors. Verse 27, he's a quiet man staying among the tents. Uh, Now the next verse describes a situation that has just disaster written all over it. Verse 28, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now can I just say to you, those parents who are here this morning with their Sunday school kids, don't imitate that at home. Parents playing favourites. Dad likes the hunter. He gets him the food he likes. Mum likes her mummy's boy. This is a family that's split right down the middle. 
And one day, when Jacob, with his apron on, is cooking up a lentil stew, Harry Esau comes in from a hard day's hunting. Uh, presumably he catches nothing because he's starving and he says to his smooth-skinned, stay-at-home brother, quick, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, let me have some of that red stew. Jacob says to him, you want stew? First, sell me your birthright. Before I give you any food, sign over your rights as firstborn, the double inheritance. Now at this point I'd suggest it's Jacob who's doing the hunting, Uh, he's setting the trap and it's Esau who's acting uh, like the dumb prey. Uh, He's sucked into a snare by a lump of bait. He's had a hard day, he's hungry, the stew smells so good. And so verse 32, what good is a birthright if he actually dies of starvation before he gets it? And so he agrees, without a thought, it's a deal. He swears an oath, he trades his birthright. Jacob gives him some bread and some stew and Esau eats, gets up and leaves. Without a second thought, no regrets. He lives lives for his stomach. In the words of verse 34, he despises his birthright. His view is so short-sighted, he'll trade his rights and responsibilities in this very special family for a plate of stew that's gone in a flash. Let's act one. Meal one. There are no heroes here. You've got Jacob. He's mean and crafty. You've got Esau. He's stupid and faithless. His appetite for a short fix, short-term fix means he gives up his future and his heritage. And grasping Jacob is ready to grab it, to drag him down as he does. Uh, we're going to jump over chapter 26 today. It's, it's less well known but I'd encourage you to read it except to make the comment that the spotlight is again on Isaac and about how God continues to promise blessing to his family. Despite some ups and downs, despite Isaac once again showing that he's not really worthy of God's grace. That's 26. And so we come to 27, uh, which is meal number two. This is Isaac's meal and his blessing. Isaac's getting old, he thinks he's about to die. His eyes are so weak he can hardly see, and so he calls for his favourite son, Esau, the older, the stronger one, the hairy one, and he says, My time's running out. Go and hunt me some wild game. Cook me a last meal and I'll give you my blessing before I die. And so off Esau goes. But the thing about tents is uh, it's pretty easy to eavesdrop and so Rebecca's listening outside the the tent and she hears and so she says to Jacob, her favourite, listen, I've overheard my father. He sent Esau away to hunt some tasty takeaway and Esau's going to get the blessing before he dies. So do what I say, here's the plan. Verse 19, she hatches the scheme, two goats from the flock. She'll cook them, just the way Dad likes, so that they'll actually taste as if they're wild game. And Jacob will take it in and, and he'll get the blessing. It's easy. After all, Isaac's as blind as a bat. But Jacob's not so sure. You and I might be uncertain because of the morals of the situation, but not Jacob. He, he's not above a little trickery of family members. That's easy. 
He said, practice at that. He's only worried he might get caught. He says, verse 11, but mum, Esau's a hairy man. I'm smooth. What, What if dad touches me? He'll know I was tricking him and I'll get a curse instead of a blessing. Well, Rebecca's thought that one out too. Goat skins. They happen to have a couple spare. Instant hair on his hands and the smooth part of his neck so he feels like Esau and then she grabs some of Esau's clothes from the foot of his bed where he hasn't put them out for for wash and they smell nice and stinky like Esau. And verse 17, she, she hands Jacob the tasty food she's made and she sends him in. It's a pretty awful con job, isn't it? It's a lousy way to treat your dad. Sure, there's been this long-standing prophecy that everybody knows uh, that Jacob will be served by the older brother Esau. Uh, And Esau, sure, he's been happy to sell off his birthright for a meal, but surely this isn't the way to go about getting your father's blessing. And it's no way to treat your brother either. It's like a train wreck. It's horrible to watch, but you can't look away because you just want to see what's happened. And so Jacob comes in. My father, he says. Who is it, says Isaac. He may be blind, but he smells a rat. It sounds as if it's Jacob. And even though he has concerns, whatever question he asks, Jacob has the answer like a good con man. He may sound like Esau. He mightn't sound like Esau, but he feels like Esau. He smells like Esau and the food tastes like Esau, thanks to mum's secret ingredients and so verse 27 as Isaac smells the fresh earthy smell of Esau's clothes he senses that all is well and he blesses Jacob verse 27 you smell like a good paddock I don't know whether that's a compliment or not so may God give you of heaven's dew and earth's richness an abundance of grain and new wine may you receive just as a paddock would May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. And that's exactly what the grasping Jacob seems to want more than anything else. To rule, to be first, to be blessed. Well, we know what's coming next, don't we? Isaac goes out just in time before Esau comes in and there's a rerun of that same scene except it's too late. Bless me too, says Esau. But Isaac can't because Jacob has come and deceitfully taken the blessing and they're both furious, dad and son. And verse 36, Esau fumes, isn't he rightfully named Jacob? The heel grabber, the one who trips you up and pulls you back, that's twice he's done it to me. He's taken my birthright, now he's taken my blessing. And Esau leaves dejected and unblessed. And verse 41 comforts himself with the thought of killing Jacob. But once again, Mum, she's resourceful and enterprising, Scheming might be another way of putting it. She jumps in to look after her favourite. She urges Jacob, flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran, verse 43. 
Stay with him until your brother's anger subsides and I'll send for you when it's safe. So here we have it. Here's our story. Two competing sons, parents who play favourites. There are no heroes. Or are there? At the start of chapter 28, Jacob leaves with his father's blessing and it seems to be genuine. And it's a blessing that reflects the blessing God has given to Isaac at the start of chapter 26. It reflects the blessing God gave to Isaac's father, Abraham, before him. In fact, it's a blessing that God has been reminding this family of for more than a century. God has promised it. It will happen. There in verse 3, have a look at it. Chapter 28, verse 3. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. So I think it's in these few verses we get a hint about who the real hero is. The only one who does what's right and just and strong and true every time, whatever happens. It's God, of course. God who never changes, who's always reliable, who's promised to bring blessing out of mess is the only thing you can trust from generation to generation to generation. In this grasping, cheating, lying world of Isaac and Jacob and Esau, God promises blessing. And it's completely free and as these chapters reveal, very undeserved. But as we widen our view, the Bible as a whole is a story of how God goes about doing that, isn't it? How he did make Jacob into a nation, Israel, and how he did give the land to them. But it's also a story of how humanity continued to act just like Isaac did, to lie and to cheat and to scheme. Uh, Jacob, I mean. And yet through it all, God continues to work out his purposes, his blessing to his people who are just as undeserving as Jacob. Blessing that culminates, that reaches its peak in Jesus. Jesus from the long line of Abraham's descendants, the one who is the means of God fulfilling all of those promises, God's ultimate blessing, the son of Abraham who deals once and for all with the mess, whose death pays the price to bring us to God, whose resurrection guarantees eternity, whose spirit lives in us, joining us to God. There's Jesus. There's a hero worth cheering for. We're only getting a little faint whisper of him at the moment, but he's there. He's the hero worth following. That'll seem a long way off from our terrible twins, doesn't it? Jacob and Esau, their failed parents, Isaac and Rebecca. So what can we learn from them? I want to suggest that just like last week, it's about what we do with the promises of God. Esau, firstly, he was born into a family with this tremendous privilege. 
with an incredible potential given by God. He'd promised descendants as numerous as the stars and a whole country to live in, but Esau had despised his birthright. He'd wasted it. If you're a Christian, then just the same as Esau, you've been promised a birthright, an inheritance. When God made you his child and forgave your sin and gave his Holy Spirit to you, he promised you an inheritance, an eternal home with him. He promised you a life now that has a new purpose and a richness and a satisfaction. They're all wonderful promises, but if we're honest, they can see... They can seem a long way off. They can seem a little dull. Uh, Perhaps a bit like Esau, we can be tempted to undervalue them, to despise them, to swap them for something tastier, something more immediate, for instant gratification, something that satisfies what we want right now, but infinitely less valuable. Hebrews 11 is full of New Testament lessons from the life of Abraham's family. Uh, Examples of people who kept trusting God even when they couldn't see him. Because that's what faith is, living today even though you can't see the promises being kept, knowing that they will come, that they will be fulfilled sometime. That's what trust is. Living today despite not seeing what's coming over the hill. Then we get to Hebrews chapter 12 where the writer to the Hebrews makes the point therefore copy these guys. Throw off the sin that's holding you back. Run the race with perseverance. Fix your eyes on Jesus even though it's tough. Even though you can't see the blessing. That's what faith is. It keeps going today even when it can't see. And eventually we actually get to Esau. Down in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Now there's all sorts of warnings there for us as Christians but here's the first one. Don't miss the grace of God. What's that got to do with Esau? It's like don't drop the ball that someone throws at you because you're looking in the wrong direction. Don't miss the grace of God. You you can know all God's promises. You can be living as a Christian and looking forward to heaven but then something comes along that distracts you that attracts you, that leads you away from following Jesus and here's God looking at you and offering you his promises but you're looking over there. You're you're taking a short-term view rather than a long-term view of faith. And so just like Esau, you're godless. Your gaze is not fixed on God. Just the way Esau did with a bowl of soup. Except for us it will probably be something different. Hard to imagine how it could be a bowl of soup. Uh, Hebrews specifically mentions sexual immorality. 
Now there's a great example of of choosing the immediate satisfaction over the long-term faithfulness. Risking your salvation, sacrificing your family, all for some flattering attention or a few minutes of feeling good. That's missing the grace of God when you give in to that sort of temptation. Or maybe it'll be greed that tempts you, an illegal shortcut to profit, a hand in the till, invoicing work you didn't do, claiming benefits you're not entitled to. Or perhaps it's a short-term desire to get even and take revenge rather than trusting the justice to God. Maybe that's the bitter root that grows up. There's a bitterness and an anger and an injustice, a desire for revenge. All of that is short-term rather than long-term. For other people, maybe it won't be a conscious decision at all to despise your birthright. Uh, But all of us know them, people who are living as Christians but they start down the path of Sunday sport or Sunday morning sleeping or buying the boat or buying the holiday house or busyness or tiredness and the Bible gathers dust on the shelf, church gets pushed out from every week to every second week or two out of three or one in three, surely that's still regular. Or maybe you get distracted from the best thing by good things. Let's be honest, finishing your education. It's important. Getting that promotion, focusing on your family, renovating the house. None of those things are bad things, are they? But they they distract. They shift our attention, our gaze away from God so that we miss the grace of God. We can be so busy pursuing those things we forget. We forget the grace of God. And before we know it, church and then God become less and then forgotten. All of this is short-term attraction rather than long-term faithfulness. We're following in the steps of Esau when we live like this. But valuing your birthright will mean making the effort, prioritising, persevering, keeping our eyes fixed on God's grace, using the ordinary means he's given us of his word and his people, his sacraments. Learn the lesson from Esau. Value what God has graciously given us. Young people, your parents have given you a wonderful heritage. Don't despise what you've been given. You get to grow up in a family where Jesus is honoured. What are you doing with that example? Are you just coasting along, hanging on to their coattails? Or are you valuing that inheritance that you've received? Have you claimed it for yourself? Have you stood up for Jesus? Not just as your family, but you personally. God has no grandchildren. You can't say my parents were your children. That means I'm in. He only has children. Don't follow Esau's example. Don't despise your birthright. 
There's a third group of people here, I guess, and that is uh, some of us are not Christian. If that's you, let me say as strongly as I can, the Christian life is a birthright. There are promises from God that are worth pursuing and holding on to and investigating. God is real. His promises are real. He does bring blessing out of the mess that this world is. Jacob got that much right, didn't he? He wanted God's blessing. He wanted it. The best thing about his promises are that they're a gift, that they're free. You can't chase them or buy them or trick someone out of them or earn them or accumulate them or negotiate them. That was Jacob's mistake. All you need to do is trust the promise and accept the promise. Don't miss God's grace, says the writer to the Hebrews. uh, Ephesians chapter 2 describes that grace brilliantly and I'll just finish with a few words from Ephesians 2 verse 4. Here's God's grace. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, not by cheating, not by grasping, not by earning, so that no one can boast. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to see through the fallenness and brokenness of the people in this story and to see Jesus, that you would help us to see through the fleeting uh, promises of the things of this world that promise us joy and satisfaction and help us instead to see the grace that you offer us in Jesus and to trust it, to keep our eyes fixed on it, that we may not miss it the way that Esau did. We thank you for the wonderful inheritance that we have, all because of Jesus. Amen.